Um, Our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is found on page 807 of your pew Bible. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please take home that one in your hand. Um, It is a gift to you from us, and we'd really, really love if you had it. Again, it's Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and it's on page 807 in the pew Bible. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. For welcoming us and for reading God's word for us. And let me just add my welcome to Christians. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. My name is Bill Gorman and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And just delighted that you're here with us this morning. And um, whether this is your first time with us, um, maybe this is your first time in a church. Maybe you haven't been uh, to church before. Uh, We're so glad that you're here and hopefully you feel welcome uh, in this place. And before we uh, look at this passage that Kristen read for us, I want to begin and ask for God's help to to understand his word and uh, and do that together as we begin. Uh, Father in heaven, we're grateful that you have spoken to us um, in your word, and I pray that now as we open this passage together and look at it, that we would see it and receive it for what it truly is, your word to us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you be at work in our lives, in our hearts, bringing about um, belief and obedience and ultimately joy in Jesus. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, it it happened again. Uh, Another shooting, another terror attack. The, The last time I was preaching a couple weeks ago, it was Paris. This time, San Bernardino. And, and, and I promise, I'm not always looking for uh, depressing ways uh, to start my sermons, but there's been so much vivid crisis lately in our world, hasn't there? And, and soon after the San Bernardino shootings, the New York Daily News ran this headline, and I'm sure many of you, you saw this on social media or in the news, that, that God isn't fixing this. And admittedly, the the article itself was a partisan one about a seeming lack of political action after another tragedy. But I think just under the surface of that political frustration, there's there's a religious frustration, a religious question. And and I think people are beginning to wonder, after so much violence, how can anyone really believe that God is fixing anything? And and so it's up to us to do something. And And I feel that. I think we all feel that, don't we? That is God really any, doing anything about this? 
And I catch myself living as if, if we are on our own, as if God doesn't really exist, as if he's not really at work in our world, sort of sliding into that stoic kind of fatalism that just says, well, this is just the way things are and just have to kind of make the best of it. And yet during this Christmas season, the Bible keeps pointing me back to this story, the story we just heard read, the story of a baby born and as crazy as it seems, look, I believe it and, it, and it still seems crazy at times, this story gives me hope. As a, Christmas as a Christian, this, this story, the Christmas story is, is all I have to offer in the face of what seems like unending tragedy and violence. What I have to offer is a, is a story of a Jewish teenage girl conceiving a baby out of wedlock 2,000 years ago in Roman Palestine. This is how God ultimately is fixing the mess we find ourselves in. This is God's rescue plan. And I know, I, I know it sounds ridiculous. And if you're not a believer, it may even sound stupid. But, but don't dismiss this. Don't miss what God is doing. Don't, don't write it off. Not yet. Examine it. Consider it this morning. Don't dismiss God's rescue. Because the biblical claim that, that the Bible makes from the very beginning all the way through the Scriptures is that all people need this story all people everywhere, you and me here in Kansas City, Muslims in Riyadh, secular humanists in Amsterdam, Hindus in Delhi, atheists in Beijing, that everyone needs this story. This is in many ways the answer to every question for all people, for all time. That's the claim that the scriptures make. God's rescue plan in the Christmas story is surprising. And from the very beginning, it's been difficult for people to believe for people to accept, and yet we desperately need it, even now. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, this text in Matthew chapter 1, we're first going to just spend some time dwelling in this story, looking at this rescue plan that just doesn't seem to make sense. And then we're going to consider three reflections on the story together. So grab your, your phone or one of the pew Bibles and Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. The Bible is divided up into two big chunks, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew is the first book. And one of the reasons that Matthew is placed at the very beginning of the New Testament is that it provides a link to the, the Old Testament. And last week we looked at Matthew's genealogy where you see a Matthew establishing this line, this king for all people, that, that Jesus has come from this long line from Abraham that includes some really unexpected people. And Matthew opens the story introducing us to Joseph. Luke, the, the third book in the New Testament, gives us the story from Mary's perspective. But Matthew focuses on what it was like for Joseph. And if this story is hard for us to believe, I mean, imagine you're, you're Joseph. And put yourself in the story and we can take a little imaginative license here, but imagine you're a Jewish carpenter in a small town. You don't have much. Your life isn't extravagant. It's, it's never going to be. 
but you're okay with that. I mean, one of the things you most want in this world is a family, your own family. You want the simple joy of a, a loving wife, this person to journey with you, the, the joy of children should God bless you, little, little feet running around the carpenter shop, getting into trouble, the, the white picket fence, the, the whole thing. It's all you want. And your shop's doing well, well enough to offer a decent living to a young wife. And you're excited because in a few months, you're finally going to get her. Her name is Mary. She's young. She's beautiful. She's yours. Hey, you're already engaged. And at, the, at this time, the, that was a legally binding thing. It required a divorce to, to break it. You've taken vows of betrothal before the wedding. The community has witnessed that. You're, you're looked into one another's eyes and you said, I do. And now all you have to do is wait for the big day when you can finally come together. And look, in, in a traditional culture, this is the biggest event in, in your life. Your whole life has been pointing to this. Seriously, there, there was no like sort of, hey, where are you going to go to college? Or, or what, what career path are you thinking about heading down? All that was decided for you when you were born to a carpenter. The question of your life has been, when are you going to settle down and have a family? And now you're this close. You're working hard. You're, you're getting the house ready, making plans. You can't wait. Your families can't wait. They've been bothering you about grandkids for years now. Mom will finally leave me alone now. And, and frankly, the whole, the whole town can't wait either because other than weddings, nothing ever really happens here. This, this wedding is going to be the event of the year and, and everyone's asking about it all over town every day. It's, it's all anyone is thinking about. You and Mary, the talk of the town, this, this dream couple. Mary's off at her cousin Elizabeth's house, and she left suddenly about, about three months ago, but that's not unusual. They, they were close. They always have been. And Elizabeth is about to have a baby and needed help getting ready around the house. And then finally one day, Mary comes back. You're working in the carpenter shop, and your friend comes to you. He looks nervous. He says, have you seen Mary yet? And you say, no, I, I didn't know she was back. He says, with an urgency and a concern, go, go now and see her. And you rush off, you're scared. What happened? What's wrong? You get to her parents' house, no one will talk to you. You find Mary alone. She turns to you. She, she tries to tell you something, but you can't hear it. And all you see is that she's starting to show. And your whole world just collapses. Your dreams, your future, your love, it, it's, it's over. It's over. You go home and you lay down in your bed and you start to weep. Because you know, you, you know you've got a decision to make. There's only two versions of the story, and, and everyone is going to be talking about either you leave her, divorce her, and everyone will know Mary cheated on you. Or you can marry her, which in your heart, deep down, you still desperately want to do. And everyone will assume you cheated on, on God, that you broke your vows, that you slept with Mary before getting married. That's it. Those are your choices. 
and you know that really there's no choice at all. It's not just your future and your reputation at stake here. Your, your whole family will be ruined if you marry this girl. If there's even a hint that you adulterated with her, and, and it will affect your brothers, your sister, your parents, everyone, everyone will have to pay for Mary's mistake. And as you try to make sense of it all, what am I going to do? You fall asleep saying the same prayer over and over again. God, fix this. You fall asleep angry, confused, heartbroken. And then suddenly in a, in a dream, an angel, a messenger of the Lord tells you this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And in this dream, you must look confused because the angel keeps going, don't you remember the prophet Isaiah, what he said? The virgin will conceive and bear a son and he will be called Emmanuel. That's what I'm telling you, Joseph. Emmanuel is Jesus. And you wake up with more questions than you had when you fell asleep, but one thing has been answered. You have to marry her. D despite everything that that means for you and what it's going to mean for your family, you have to marry this girl. And five or six months after this dream, you meet Emmanuel, kicking and screaming in a manger in Bethlehem. But you remember, he doesn't need a name. He already has one. Jesus. God rescues and this is how God rescues the world. It's like, wait, what? In the middle of a marital crisis in a nowhere town, in a nowhere province, God tells a nobody carpenter that his son, who isn't even his son, will be God's son, and that he will save his people from their sin. I mean, no one expected God's rescue to look like this. No one. And yet it has so much to say about how God is fixing this and what he wants to do in your life and, and how he wants to work in this world. And so what does this mean for you, uh, for me? I mean, is Christmas just a sentimental, feel-good time of year where we hang ornaments of Mickey Mouse dressed as Santa Claus on trees and sing songs? Or is what happened to Mary and Joseph and their little family to be a world-defining event? Is what we celebrate this time of year just platitudes and warm feelings? Or do we celebrate the quiet, subversive invasion of the God of the universe into the world he made and is reclaiming as his own from the hands of a dark enemy who has pretended to reign for far too long. So what does the story of rescue mean for you, for me? Well, here are just three reflections. First, the rescue is stranger than you think. First, the rescue is stranger than you think. 
This isn't the way we would have planned to rescue the world. A baby conceived out of wedlock, born to a poor family in a backward corner of Rome 2,000 years ago. I mean, it certainly didn't make sense to Joseph. And look, it wasn't like 2,000 years ago people just believed that, that storks delivered babies. Joseph knew how this worked. They weren't any more gullible. They weren't any more confused about this than, than we are. He knew where babies came from. So did everyone else in town. And yet the same God who speaks and stars and planets and worlds are created, who breathes and dust comes to life, in a supernatural act whispers and comes into the world as a microscopic embryo, a baby, a tiny vulnerable baby growing in Mary. And that's strange. Like really strange. I I think sometimes we miss the strangeness of it either because we're so familiar with it or we don't actually believe it to be true that we just consider it a, a nice story or a myth. But if this actually happened, it's really strange. God sends a spirit and a child is conceived in a virgin Jewish girl That's not at all what Joseph was expecting in this moment. God shows up in an engagement in this almost marriage that's on the verge of collapse to save the world. And this confronts us all. It's hard to believe, no matter who you are or where you're from, to put your trust in this, to, to put your life in it. And in fact, if it wasn't true, it would be blasphemy, right? That, that God would never do this, float in amniotic fluid, that he would be born and would have, that he'd wet himself and have, need a diaper change, that he would disgrace himself with, with an unmarried mother in the beginning, born to a poor Jewish carpenter. And if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, I mean, this might be one of the main reasons you're not. This just seems so illogical that even if there was a God, he wouldn't do this. But it's actually the supernatural elements of the story that highlight how bad our situation really is. It it took a supernatural work to rescue us. The Bible tells us that's how bad off things are with us. That the solution can't come from the inside. It has to break in from the outside. The rescue is stranger than you think. But, but don't dismiss it. Because this is the pattern of how God works. He rescues in ways that just don't make sense to us. I mean, think about it. All the way back at the beginning of the story, at the beginning of the series, we even looked at it, that he calls Abraham and Sarah who can't have children and who are well past childbearing age. And he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation And he uses a man uh, also whose name was Joseph in the Old Testament who's betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery. That's the way that he preserves his people from a famine that probably would have wiped them out. He takes Moses, a baby that should have been murdered, and places him as a prince in the palace of the very people who were ordering his death. He takes David, the youngest and least likely of all of his brothers, and makes him the king of the nation, the, the greatest king that Israel would have. And I could give lots and more examples of this, but I think you get the point. God doesn't work in ways that we would expect or ways that we would choose. And this means that we shouldn't be surprised 
when there are big parts of our own stories and God's work of rescue in our own lives that make no sense to us sometimes. It was Soren Kierkegaard who said that we live our lives forward, but we understand them backwards. So look for the rescue when it doesn't make sense. In the unexpected job loss, in the broken engagement, in the marriage in crisis, and the confusion and anger following the death of a loved one. Trust when you can't see how it's going to work out. Hope, even when it seems like there's every reason to despair. I mean, that's what Joseph had to do. Just think about it for a minute. We know that from the rest of the gospel stories, it's highly likely that Joseph died at some point before Jesus started his work of preaching and teaching. He's never mentioned later on in the story of the Gospels, and, and we don't know for sure, but it's, it's, it's highly likely that, Jesus, that Joseph died before he, he ever saw Jesus heal anyone, before he ever heard Jesus preach or give a sermon, that he didn't see him die on the cross or rise from the dead three days later. He most likely died still waiting to see exactly what God was up to in his life. In a life that he would have not chosen or expected. In a life that probably had to endure a lot of shame. And lots of explanations that no one quite believed. The rescue is stranger than you think. And the rescue is deeper than you think. Stranger and deeper. And what do I mean by deeper? What I mean is this, that what we think of as our greatest problem is almost never really the problem. What we think of as our greatest problem is almost never really the problem. Joseph thinks his biggest problem is that his marriage to Mary is collapsing. And, and he's, he's fuming, he's confused, ready to, to quietly divorce her. Verse 20 in the English Standard Version, which we heard read, says that Joseph considered these things as he's falling asleep. But that, that word is probably better translated that he was frustrated or fuming or upset. He isn't sort of just dispassionately considering and pondering his options. He's devastated. Joseph says, my marriage is falling apart, and God answers, I'm saving the world. God's rescue often looks like an intervention, right? Joseph tried to solve this on his own, but when he came to the end of himself, God intervened. He looks at us and says, look, it's, it's not me, it's, it's you. Your sin is so bad. Joseph, you can't even be, be the father. It doesn't even, you can't even be that. It's got to come from the outside. It can't come from the inside. So maybe God's rescue isn't for your problems, but for your problem. Verse 21 tells us that the problem of all humanity for all people is sin. Verse 21 says, You will call him Jesus, which means God rescues, God saves, because he will save his people from their sin. Uh, we think our problem is a, is a marriage in crisis or credit card debt or a boy at school or chronic health problems, but God says we have a much different, bigger problem 
Yes, he will rescue us from those things one day, if not now in the new creation. We want rescue from problems, but first he wants to deal with the one problem that rules them all and it's underneath them all, and that's the problem of sin, the problem that is behind all the other problems. And it just doesn't make sense to us often because we, we don't want to deal with that. And that is the same way for Joseph and all the, the other Jews in the first century as well. They were expecting a rescue from Rome to return from sort of this oppression that, that they were under. The reality, though, was a rescue from sin by the ransom of a suffering servant of a baby born in Nazareth to this couple from Nazareth. They thought they were slaves to Rome, but they were first and foremost slaves to sin. And this is the problem with how we define freedom in our cultural context, right? Because we often see freedom in the West as freedom from any constraints, freedom to be who I am with, without exception. But what we don't realize is that often ends up making us slaves to ourselves, And Jesus has come to set us free from ourselves so that we might be all that he created us to be. That is creatures that delight to love God and to love our neighbors in joy. But here's the thing. All of us are working with some kind of a rescue plan. We're, we're all trying to, to figure out how to solve the, the problems in our lives most of us just haven't probably thought that deeply about it. Um, I love there's the, the, the FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, has these like PSA, these public service uh, billboards. And this is one of my favorite ones. It just says on the bottom, I just love the tagline, it just says, winging it is not an emergency plan. Yet so many of us live our lives that way, right? We're just, we're just kind of winging it. We, we, we try to cobble together meaning and happiness, taking a little bit of spirituality and religion here and we had a little bit of self-help self over there and a few life hacks here and there. But how is your own rescue really going? Is it actually dealing with the problem underneath the problem? Or do you keep shipwrecking on the same old flaws in your character time and time again. I mean, how are those New Year's resolutions going 11 and a half months in? Do you even remember what they were? I know this rescue plan is hard to believe, hard to trust. But is your plan working out any better Why do you put this story to so much scrutiny and not yourself? Because God's rescue is not first and foremost about your finances or your job or your marriage or whatever. It's first and foremost about this deeper problem of sin. C.S. Lewis uses the metaphor of a house. This has always been a helpful picture to me. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. 
But presently, he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurt abominably. And it doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation, Lewis says, is that he's building something quite different from the house you thought of. Throwing up a new wing there, putting in an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little college cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. You see, God's rescue is not freedom from suffering. God's rescue often regularly includes suffering, incredible suffering. Think about Jesus on the cross. If that's our Savior, we shouldn't expect that we ought not suffer in life. And yet deep down, as hard as the story to believe, isn't this the God that you long for? Don't we want this to be true? Because if this story isn't true, it's not because it's too dumb to be true. It's because it's too good to be true. But it is true. So the rescue stranger the rescue's deeper, and the rescue's also wider than you think. And to get to this point, we need to look at this, this title for Jesus, Emmanuel. The angel says, Jesus is Emmanuel. What does that mean? Well, it's a reference to an old promise of God from Isaiah chapter 7. It was originally for one of Israel's kings, um, who's over a part of, of, the, of the nation called Judah, King Ahaz. And Judah was besieged by its enemies. And Ahaz didn't seek the Lord in this time of trouble, but instead put his own rescue plan together. He was winging it. Sound familiar? And God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz and says this. Isaiah says, to prove to you that my rescue plan is better, that God's rescue plan is better than yours, a son is going to be born and the young woman will give birth. And the, the Hebrew here probably means young woman, but it can be translated virgin. And that's what Matthew picks up on in his text in the verse we were looking at this morning. And before that boy is old enough to know right from wrong, God says, I'll take care of your enemies, Ahaz. This is how you will know that I am God with you, which is what Emmanuel means, God with us. But Isaiah keeps going and he talks about another son to be born. And he's more than just a sign to Ahaz to trust God. Here's how Isaiah describes him in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David over, the king, over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forevermore. No king of Judah, no king of any country ever could be described in that way. Isaiah here is talking about a cosmic king. A child who is God himself a king over the whole universe, a perfect kingdom of justice and righteousness unlike the world has ever known. And so when Matthew tells us that Jesus is Emmanuel, he's saying this is the rescue plan from the beginning. This is not just a rescue plan. This is the rescue plan for all time, for all people. And if our problem is sin, running from God, then God's solution must be Emmanuel. God with us, God chasing after us, God come to us. 
And that's exactly who Jesus claims to be. God himself come near to fix this broken world. When Joseph heard the angel say that Jesus would save his people from their sins, Joseph probably heard his people thinking of the Jewish people. But Matthew makes it clear throughout his gospel that Jesus' people are anyone who put their trust in him, Jew and non-Jew alike. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 8, after he heals a Gentile, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying it's wide open for everyone and anyone to come. At the very end of Matthew, Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. It's wide open. It's bigger, it's deeper, it's wider than we think. There is a reason that the story of Emmanuel, God come down, has taken root in different kinds of people in different cultures all over the world for 2,000 years. This is the greatest story ever told. Who doesn't want God with us? Who doesn't want Jesus, the God-man who takes away the sins of the world by pure grace, the God who descends to be with us even when we weren't looking for him, even when we didn't want him? Do you know what this rescue plan means? It means that there's no one who is too far from God. There's no person who's so immoral, no culture that's so corrupt. There's no mistake so bad, no sin unforgivable that God can't come near right now to you. Jesus and the kingdom he brings is for everyone, everywhere, for all people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that even though it rarely makes sense to us, that the glorious story of your rescue of the whole world and each and every one of us here is true, that you've come to live with us, to be with us as one of us to save all of us. I thank you that Even when I never wanted to follow Jesus, you came and you rescued me. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory.